Well, I rejoice in God's timing that we're currently going through a passage that focuses on discipleship in Titus chapter 2, and it allows us to see how the testimony of discipleship is God's design for the church. And we're going to continue our sermon series entitled The Testimony of Our Church. And we have some unfinished business in Titus 2. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to, to go ahead and open up to the book of Titus. Okay. And we've been looking at the opening verses, which really have us focused on two age groups. The first couple of messages focused on being older and wiser in verses 2 and 3. And we talked about the testimonies of older men in the church and how the gospel impacts the way that we live. And these men will be marked by spiritual maturity. And the Holy Spirit led Paul to describe for us what an overview looks like. And when we looked at how the gospel, we also looked at how the gospel impacts the testimonies of older women as they mature in Christ. And Paul provides a description of what the testimony of their character will look like within the church before shifting his attention to those who are younger. And he does so by making a discipleship connection. For those who are older and wiser, God calls them to invest in the lives of those who are young and teachable as they lead by example. And all the time that Paul is doing this, he's addressing an issue that we've talked about many times before. Okay, False teaching had infected the island of Crete. There was a major problem with the churches on the island due to false teaching, teaching that basically disregarded any correlation between creed and conduct. And as a result, the church's testimonies were suffering. And this is why the theme of the entire letter of Titus is really one of correction. It, it is Paul shepherding it. It really is a discipleship letter intended to bless the church. And he, he doesn't want us to miss the connection between faith in Christ and fruitful living. And I've shared it before, and I'll say it again. The gospel changes everything. Amen? The gospel changes everything. And there's a direct connection with salvation and how we live. And this is exactly why Paul starts his letter by sharing the ministry motive that he did in the opening verses. And it seems like many months ago that we covered those verses, and that's because it has been. And it, we don't want to lose sight of the fact of what he say, said in verse 1 of the opening chapter. Paul, a bondservant of God and of apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life. This truly is a discipleship letter. And if I can borrow an expression that we heard uh, Pastor Kurt share from our last weekend together, he said that what we do in discipleship when we invest in the lives of someone, we're investing in or filling up what is lacking in their faith. Do you remember him sharing that? I know the men do specifically in session four. And ladies, if I could encourage you just to, to go back, I know that um, we had the split session on session four, but uh, that fourth session that Kurt shared with us um, a, as men is, is fitting for all of us. It wasn't... Um, spelled out just specifically for men and so that will really bless you to have a chance to look at that and so uh, Paul wants us to see that the knowledge of the truth 
which is in accordance to godliness in the hope of eternal life, in the hope of where we're headed. God is a holy God. Heaven is a holy place. And the Christian calling is a call to holiness. And for everyone who has repented of their sin, who has trusted in Christ alone for salvation, not trusting in your good works, not trusting in your spiritual resume, not trusting in anything at a human level, but trusting in Christ alone. The Bible teaches that something has happened in our hearts and in our lives. We are born again. We are born again to live for God and His glory. And through a gospel-converted heart, we have new God-given desires to pursue holiness and to live a sanctified life on this side of the cross so that He is glorified. And the Apostle Paul was trying to get Cretan believers who were being impacted by the lust-filled gluttonous culture on the island to see the implications of the gospel and their need for honoring the word of God by how they live their lives. At a retreat, a dear brother and I were spending some time just talking about the reality that we basically live on the island of Crete. We do. Um, just put simply, when we look at the, the lust-filled, deceptive um, culture we could literally change our name from america to americrete just dis simplify it and we are one of the most gluttonous cultures in the world and our obesity is a reminder of this and any one of the medical professionals in the room will affirm this reality we supersize everything and it's no wonder when we compare ourselves to the rest of the cultures on the planet that we even look supersized we do and how about la laziness we we have escalators everywhere right they're everywhere in the in, in the airport you know it's just even designed that it, it, it's too far to walk so we're going to put an escalator in grocery stores are quickly filling up with motorized carts because people lack the energy and the effort to even walk the the aisles of the grocery store there are remote controls for virtually everything you don't want to get up to turn the ceiling fan on click you hit the remote change the tv click change the dvr click here's one that's um really new and hot on the scene right now the uh, the uh, remote controlled electric reclining chair huh how about that one apparently in our culture you know that that lever that you had to reach over and grab and, and pull to have the chair recline. Apparently, in our American culture, that requires just a little bit too much effort. And I understand that some of these items serve people with disabilities, and I'm thankful to be an American, but our culture is cretin to the core. And I haven't even mentioned evil yet. Never mind the abortions, burglaries, carjackings, homicides, hate crimes, rapes, abductions, and financial embezzlements and lies that take place annually. Our news is filled with it. And so my question for you is this, do we not live in a similar pagan culture and environment as the Cretans do? Do we? Just asking it straightforward, we do. 
we do. And God provides clear instruction for us on how we are to be testimonies in this world. And his instruction will help us live counterculturally so that we can live for his glory. And we'll see this more clearly as we study our passage together. Let's go to the scriptures. If you're not there yet, open up to uh, Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to read the opening five verses. Paul says to Titus, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Well, if you have a bulletin this morning, you'll notice that the sermon proposition is identical to the one that we had before as we work our way and continue um, uh, finishing verses 4 and 5. Your teachability allows the gospel and God's word to be magnified in your testimony. Has God changed your heart? Has God changed your heart to live for him and to live for his glory? Has he? he has there's a a sensitivity there's a teachability that will come there will be a taste there will be a hunger there will be a desire for god's word so that we can live accordingly in light of his grace in our lives and we understand that that ebbs and flows we understand that it's not always a a a a fiery hot flame that there are seasons there are our lulls but but in his faithfulness to us, in, in, in perseverance, and in, in God working in us, he always, always, always does what? Even when that fire and that, 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 that flame is dim, he, he, he rekindles it. He draws us back to himself time and time again. Well, this is one flow of thought from the Apostle Paul And though we'll be looking at testimonies of younger women in the church, the proposition applies to us all, whether we're older or younger. And verses uh, 4 and 5, we said, provide seven testimonies of young and teachable women. And we covered the first two that are already listed for you in the outline. And today we're going to attempt to cover the remaining five in verse 5. Testimony number one, young teachable women learn to love their husbands. Testimony number two, young teachable women learn to love their children. And we shared that a biblical love is a love that is learned. And we spent additional time just looking at a survey of the New Testament definition so that we can have a deep, thorough, and robust definition for love. And we put the working definition back in the bulletin again this week. And it says this, true biblical love is a God-originated heart attitude manifesting itself as a fruit of the spirit that enables both our actions and our emotions to imitate christ and servanthood and sacrifice and commitment and that's that's something i hope that the lord just captures captures your soul with the love 
this love specifically is rooted in Christ and the gospel. And we determine that if God has called us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and called us to love our neighbor as ourselves, as believers, having a firm grasp on God's love displayed for us through the gospel will bless us in great measure. And this ties right into our sermon proposition. Your teachability allows the gospel and God's word to be magnified in your testimony. Well, let's tackle verse 5, and it reads as follows. And this is qualities of older women, again, teaching the younger women to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. We asked this question, and I want to ask it again, just in case there were some that weren't here last week. When a person is saved, are they immediately a godly person? Are they immediately a godly person? Instantly. We, we answered that question. And I thought about that a little bit more. It's, it's a yes and a no. Okay? It's yes in terms of our justification and the perfect standing and the righteousness before holy God. It's a no in that in our sanctification, there's opportunities for us to progressively grow and mature. And this comes by way of instruction and teaching as we turn to God through a spirit of humility and teachability. We put off the old self and we renew our minds with God's instruction, which transforms us and enables us to put on or mature in Christ. Well, testimony number three is this. Young, teachable women learn to be sensible. And this word is going to sound more and more familiar because it's a word that Paul uses four times in this chapter alone. Verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, and 12. And he also uses this uh, verb form, the cognate, in verse 4 that is translated encourage in the NAS and train in the ESV. So we have five times in 12 verses. That's pretty concentrated, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? God does not want us to miss it. Why is the Apostle Paul using this word so much when describing the testimonies of those in the church? He also used the same word to describe an elder or an overseer in Titus 1.8. It means sober-minded, prudent, self-controlled. So why is it such a dominant term used to describe the leaders of the church as well as its members? Paul recognized both the lack of self-control in the Cretan culture manifesting itself through gluttony, deception, and laziness, and the negative influence that it was having in the church. And Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, would have us recognize it in our American culture as well. The testimony of our lives in our church should run counter to the culture in which we live. And let's consider what this looks like practically when we think of the terms gluttony, deception, and laziness. Gluttony encourages us to take as much as we want. Supersize it. Have your fill. Self-control, on the other hand, or being sensible, encourages us to take only what we need and to be considerate of the needs of others. And here's a real practical example. I think that we, we can gain a sense just even through what's going on in the state of California as we suffer um, through this pretty significant drought, right? 
and, and we've been called to um, be wise with and sensible with how we use water. Well, a person who is gluttonous will, is basically going to say, I don't care. I don't, I don't care about the drought. I don't care. I'm going to use as much water as I want to use. And being sensible and self-controlled says, I, I want to work proactively. I, I want to do my part. I want to be a part of the solution. And I just thought that that was a real practical insight because, I mean, you know, it's not a good testimony if I have Lydia and Sophia out with the garden hose in the front yard going, you know, or, you know, they're out there washing the car uh, or I'm out there washing the car twice a week, you know, making sure it's nice and shined up. It's just that, that, that comes in to play in our testimony. I think most of us think about food when we think about being gluttonous, but it can be overindulgence in any area of life. And recently, the college and NFL football season started. And all of the guys in the room say, can I, can I get amen? Amen. All right. We, we, some of us enjoy watching football. But if, if not careful, what can happen? Right? Um, it, it, it's possible that um, the majority of your Saturday and potentially even Sundays, if you're a real big football fan, can be spent watching game after game after game. And what that does is, it drives us towards dissipation. And being sensible and self-controlled guards us for such temptations. And you, you just, it, it's a reflection on our life. We have to look within to see what areas gluttony or being gluttonous is a struggle for us. Deception is also in our culture, and it runs pandemically. Adultery and d divorce are commonplace. Infidelity in marriage and business practices are widely spread. Cheating in many ways is considered okay so long as you don't get caught. And the testimony of the church is that we should be sensible or self-controlled and stand for the truth. Integrity should be our prize for the glory of Christ. Integrity should be our prize for the glory of Christ. We're not going to go to the DMV with a bill of sale and, and, and say that we only paid uh, five grand on a car that we paid 10 or 15 grand on just to, to save on our taxes. We're not going to steal our neighbor's Wi-Fi because we found out that their, their password's unprotected and now we don't have to pay for it on a monthly basis. We're not going to uh, be shopping in a store and switch a, a, a price tag on an item just so that we can save a few bucks. We'll, we'll let the world, we'll let the world practice such things. Amen? We'll let the world be that kind of testimony. But our testimony is going to honor Christ as he works in us and through us to be sensible Laziness is another common theme in our culture. We want to work less, make more, and retire early. Okay? That's, that's what's being fed into our minds regularly. Work less, make more, and retire earlier. All for the sake of your biggest form of stress being 
a round of golf, maybe, in the afternoon. This is the Americretan dream. It truly is. Laziness and apathy dancing the night away. The Americretan dream. Laziness always serves self. And the church's testimony of being sensible and sober-minded helps us focus on our service to God and to others. It's a great testimony for believers who take vacation time so that they can go on a missions trip to serve God in another part of the world. The, the world looks at that and they're just like, you did what? They, they cannot even comprehend it. And being sensible also keeps us sensitive to the service needs within the church. Did you know that there's a group of people week after week, month after month, who, who serve faithfully over on the other side of this wall in children's ministries? And some of them are represented right here in this room. You're sensible and sensitive to the need, and I praise God for the work in your hearts, because without you, we wouldn't have a ministry. Yet, I know this, I know this for a fact, we need more help. We need more help. And next Sunday, you've already heard it, instead of equipping hour, we'll be having ministry one training for rock servants in both Pebbles, which is going to be ages zero to four years, so we want to start broadcasting this a little bit. And boulders, which is going to be kindergarten through fifth grade. Okay, those will be the two ministries in rock ministry. Pebbles and boulders. And we have some exciting ministry changes coming. And if you're looking for a place to make disciples, we want you to learn how you can serve. It's called being sensible. And we learn and grow in how to be more sensible. And all of us are called to be sensible. And verse 5 features it yet again for young women and their testimonies. Our teachability, again, will allow the gospel and God's word to be magnified in our testimony. Well, there's a fourth testimony, which we find in verse 5. Young, teachable women learn to be pure. And the word here can also mean chaste and modest. And one commentator shares this insight, though it originally referred to to uh, referred to ritual cleanliness, over time its emphasis shifted to the moral realm. Here it likely has serious overtones of sexual purity. And Paul uses the same term or the same root of the word when writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.2, encouraging him to appeal to older, um, older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. This mindset, I believe, is, is spiritually healthy. And I think it assists sexual purity as to how we view others. And if our mindset treats them like a brother or sister, then it should assist us not to think sexual thoughts or distance us from even the temptation of sexual sin as well. And we can't be exhorted enough in this area. Uh, we live in a time where we, we need to be regularly challenged uh, as it relates to our purity in the sexual realm. And the battle is very real regardless 
of gender. And we're living in a time where the, the media and the advertisements are, are just come to us. It's just an onslaught of, of things that are headed and trying to capture our attention visually. And the goal is for us to start viewing people as objects. And this, I think, is what is most alarming and damaging about the effects of internet pornography. You and I must always have spiritual lenses on our eyes when it comes to how we view people. They are not objects. They are souls. They are souls. God views them as souls, and we should view them as souls as well. And those men and women who are involved in the pornographic industry are lost and hellbound. And they need Christ, and they need the gospel. And by the grace of God, we have been freed from the bondage of such fleshly lust so that we no longer view people as objects, but we view them for what they are, their souls. And far be it from us that we would ever be captivated by pornography. And if you are doing battle in this arena, or if it's been a struggle for you in the past, there is something spiritually healthy for you to do as a believer, and that's to cultivate a healthy fear of God and think about people the way that he thinks about them, as souls, not objects. It is the gate to freedom. Through the gospel, we have been enabled to wage war against the flesh and fleshly thoughts. And through God's word, he instructs us so that we can think rightly about our brothers and sisters in Christ as well as our fellow man. They are souls, and may we never succumb to think of them any differently. And if you struggle um, with, with that area, an aspect of, of purity in your life, or, or if you're someone that maybe just even recently, if, if, if you've had any encounter um, with pornography even in the last um, couple months can can i can i encourage you um this is what the lord would have you do this stems straight out of our retreat time as 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 we spent our time last week talking about discipleship this is what god would have you do talk to somebody find someone develop a relationship with someone be transparent with someone Confess your sin. Partner in prayer. Find accountability. Okay? Commit to accountability and trust the Lord to help you walk in victory. And Philippians 4.8 comes to the rescue again. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, the exact same word, hagnos, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, whatever is going to give you a good reputation as a good testimony within the church, think about these things. Dwell on these things. And again, being teachable exalts the gospel that freed us to dwell on that which is pure. And it also magnifies the word of God in our testimonies as the commands of Christ renew our minds so that we can grow in his likeness. When we're studying seven testimonies of young and teachable women, and so far, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2 have allowed us to see four, four of them. Testimony number one, 
young teachable women learn to love their husbands. They learn to love their children. They learn to be sensible. They learn to be pure. Testimony number five is this. They learn to be workers at home. Over the years, this verse has been the subject of controversy, um, or I, I should say a lot of discussion, not necessarily controversy in evangelical circles. Does it teach that the wife is only to work at home? Does it prohibit a wife from ever working outside of the home? What ministry implications can be taken from this testimony? Can a woman work outside of the home and remain qualified to serve as a ministry leader or deaconess in the church? What should happen if a wife's husband is unable to work? What if a wife or mother is divorced or widowed? What are they to do? Well, this is the short list, okay? Uh, that, and, and it provides you just a, a glimpse into all the challenges that have arisen over the years. And believe me when I say it's, it's the short list. And I realize that this is a, a, a topic of sensitivity for some. And so I want to spend some additional time on this point. And as your bulletin indicates, we're going to look at it from three different angles. The exegetical aspect, the cultural aspect, and the motives. And I'll explain more about these as we, we move through the point. First up to bat is the exegetical uh, aspect. What does the original language tell us? Ironically, in the Greek, we only have one compound word to study, so there isn't a whole lot to uncover. It is a combination of the, the Greek word oikos, which means home, and ergo, which means to work. So we're, it, 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 the literal translation is worker at home, and it's in the plural, so it's workers at home. It is an adjective, not a command. And this is significant because if it came with any type of imperatival force, then that would settle a lot of the discussion. But it doesn't. It's simply an adjective describing the character that older women are to teach the younger women in the church. And it literally means workers at home. And this is how the NAS translates it. The ESV, I believe, says working at home. Is that right? If you have an ESV. The, the KJV King James Version translates it keepers at home, and they arrive there by using a textual variant. It's one of the few translations that uses a, a, a less common uh, textual variant. And the New Revised Standard Version translates it good managers of the household. So here the NAS seems to be the most literal translation. Now I want you to look at verse 5 because this is... this. This is significant, and, and some scholars have suggested that these testimonies are paired together, and, and, and I believe that they are. And so I just want you to see this, and you can make a determination. Um, they, they cite that lovers of husbands can be paired with lovers of children. Sensible and pure go hand in hand, while workers at home and good, which can also be translated kind, can also go together. And there's, there's a number of scholars that I... That, that I trust, and uh, D. Edmund Hebert is w one of them, and, and there are a, a few other guys that believe that these are uh, paired up. And this seems uh, to allow them to fit together logically. It makes great sense when the third pair is translated good workers at home, which many believe is what Paul had in mind while he was contrasting the teachable women of Crete 
with the young women who were widowed in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 5, 13 and 14, who were, were learning to be idle, and they, they were gossips, and they were going from house to house. That was their testimony. And they were sharing all kinds of improper things. Well, the majority of you then is that this verse is not forbidding a wife or a mother from working outside of the home, but rather it affirms the active role that a wife and mother have within God's design for them to be good workers at home. And even the most conservative scholars don't believe that this is a prohibition, keeping a wife and mother from working outside of the home. Rather, it affirms that the home is to be a wife's and mother's chief priority as she fulfills her role. And the context supports this. I mean, think about it. What better way for a, a, a woman to love her husband and love her children than to be fully committed to taking care of the atmosphere, atmosphere found within the home. Well, this is a fitting time for us to transition to the cultural aspect, and here's why. We need to consider how our own culture can influence our interpretation of this passage, and to help provide a fair perspective of women working outside of the home, I want us to do just a, a, a very quick biblical survey of, of women working in Scripture. Everyone up for that? Okay, so um, I'm going to um, share, share the Scriptures. You can jot these down, ladies, men, if you want to have an opportunity to look. We're not going to be able to turn to everyone, but I just want to give you the testimonies, and some of these ladies' names will even sound very familiar to you. The Bible reveals that it was not unusual for ancient women to have a job out, outside of the home, and this included wives and mothers. The Bible mentions wives and mothers who worked in commercial trade, even referencing the nameless woman of Proverbs 31. We know that she is both a wife and a mother because the passage tells us that she is in Proverbs 31. In Proverbs 31, 16, it describes her surveying a field and then buying it from her earnings so that she may plant a vineyard. I was joking with Victoria last night. I said, sweetie, you want to take some of your money and go survey a field, buy a vineyard? I'll support you. Okay. Verse 24, she, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Agriculturally, we're familiar with the book of Ruth, right? And if you'll recall, in, in the book of Ruth, um, it, it tells us about Ruth going into the, the wheat fields. And Boaz, if you'll recall, even encouraged Ruth to stay with his maids who were also employed in the service. Well, many women in the Old Testament functioned as slaves, and some were com compensated, and some were unpaid. And the point is that they were put to work. Now, in fairness, someone may argue that slaves had no choice but to work and that there was no family dynamic in which that they were responsible for. And I would hear that argument, but what was more common was that slaves would work during the day and then they would retire to their quarters and in many instances would be permitted to come back to take care of their families in the slave quarters. The point is that women were not only permitted to work, but in many instances were required to work. In 1 Samuel 8.13, we, 
we hear Samuel give an account that the future king will also take your daughters for perfumers, cooks, and bakers. In Genesis and Exodus, women served as midwives and nurses. In Jeremiah, in Genesis 35.8, Exodus 1.15 and following, Exodus 2.7, 2 Samuel 4.4, 1 Kings 1.4, and I know I said those fast, but you can check those out on, on your own time. We wouldn't have time to, to look at them directly. In Jeremiah, women were employed as professional mourners as described in Jeremiah 19, 17. And some women worked as shepherds, artisans, others in textiles, or as millers. Ephraim's daughter, Shira, were told in 1 Chronicles 7, built portions of entire towns. And this is just a very brief survey of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are examples of three prominent women who worked and were also very active in gospel ministry. We have the example of Lydia in Acts 16, who was a merchant for purple fabric. Priscilla traveled with her husband and worked with him as a tent maker, according to Acts 18.3. And then, of course, there's Phoebe, who the Apostle Paul commends to us. And my wife, who oftentimes plays devil's advocate while given sermon feedback, shared this perspective. She said, just because women work doesn't mean that it was God's design, does it? Polygamy took place, and we know that wasn't God's intention. And so I responded, and I told her, woman, you just need to submit to me and, and be <laughs> quiet, okay? I, I don't need to hear that right now. That, that's not helping me. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't. I considered her point, and I'm going to share it in just a moment when we talk about the motives, but I want to finish our consideration of the cultural aspect and its influence. You see, no matter what culture that we're brought up in, there's a shaping influence that our upbringing has in our lives. If you were raised in a culture where women were primarily responsible for taking care of the home while the men were outside of the home working and providing for it, that has shaped your thinking. And likewise, if you were raised in a culture where great emphasis was put on education and the pursuit of a career, it also has shaped your thinking. Like it or not, these experiences in many ways shape who we are and how we think about certain things. And the challenge we face when we come to a verse like Titus 2.5 that says younger women are to learn to be workers at home is to look at it without our cultural bias. That, my friends, can be hard for many of us to do. So we have seen both the exegetical and the cultural aspects, and now we need to weigh out the motives without cultural biases because this really is the tell-all that determines whether or not a wife or mother should work outside of the home. Both the exegesis and the cultural aspects should broaden our perspective. But just like Victoria asked me, because God doesn't directly forbid it, does it mean that it's permissible? Though a woman could work outside of the home, the question still needs to be asked, should she work outside of the home? The best way to reveal motives is by asking questions, and I want to be helpful. And so here are some questions that you can consider and help determine if 
um, it would be wise for a Christian mother to work outside of the home. First question is this. What is the primary reason for working outside of the home? Is it financial? Is it money motivated? Many women work outside of the home because of finances. And a husband and wife must discuss and determine what their financial situation requires. They must also, uh, and I would say this falls on us as a responsibility, husbands. Has every option been explored for us to either work more hours or to work a second job? Okay, has that, that been considered? Has every option been explored just as it relates to adjustments in the home that can help reduce cost of living, right? Um, are there things that you can do inside that will free up some financial resources? And it's always wise for couples to consider the difference between needs and wants and make sure the motive is not driven by materialism. Another question that flows out of what is the primary reason for working outside of the home? Is it career motivated? Many women desire to work outside of the home because there's a lack of fulfillment in staying at home. And our culture doesn't help in this regard. And oftentimes, motives can be driven by the curse. They can. Feminism can be the driving motive which encourages a woman to find her purpose or identity in her career, and if not careful, this can quickly supersede the role which God prescribes. This, of course, can and should be shepherded. Just listen to this powerful testimony uh, from Dorothy Patterson, wife of Paige Patterson, pastor and theologian, who, who writes this. Homemaking is a career. The dictionary defines the homemaker as the one who manages a household, especially a wife and a mother. There are reasons why I believe this career is important enough to demand a woman's diligent preparation, foremost commitment, full energies, and greatest creativity. A homemaker does her job without the enticement of a paycheck, but she cannot be duplicated for any amount of money, for, quote, her worth is far above jewels, end quote, Proverbs 31.10. She goes on to say, homemaking is not employment for slothful, unimaginative, incapable women. It has, a much, it has as much challenge and opportunity, success and failure, growth and expansion, benefits and incentives as any corporate career. And this, again, is not to discourage anyone and, and me advocating a position that it's only appropriate for a wife to be a worker at home. I, I, I'm, I'm, that's, that's not the point. My point is, is just that there would be a healthy spiritual perspective as it relates to the career that a woman already has as a mother and as a wife in the home. We don't want to undermine the significance and the impact of this career in the plan that God designed through being a wife and a mother, and I think I've mentioned this story before when we, we first got here uh, to Cornerstone and we had our vehicles, I had a call to be insured um, as much as we wanted to use our insurance from out of state, which was uh, cheaper. We wanted to, uh, we had to get auto insurance within the state. Yeah, 
Adam's back there laughing at me. Yeah, it's just, it's just part of it, right? So I was talking to um, this, this young guy over the phone, and I, I was telling him that, you know, we had a couple vehicles that we needed insurance for. And he asked me if um, I used my vehicle to travel to and from work, to which I responded, I did. And he said, okay. And he said, your wife has a vehicle? And I said, um, yeah, she does. She, the, we have a Honda Odyssey minivan that, we, that, that, that she uses. And then he asked if she uses her vehicle to travel to and from work. And at that time, I, I said, no. Um, and he said, oh, she's just a stay-at-home mom. And I was like, dude, really? Like, you have no idea. You have no idea. And he doesn't. He is a young guy. And if I would have been thinking, I should have said, yes, she has a car, and yes, she does use it for work. And I'd pay the extra insurance just to say that. <laughs> Seriously. Like, because it is. It's, it's, it, it, it's work. And, and sadly, there are many in this unbelieving world who, who don't comprehend or even see the beauty in all that God has designed for wives and mothers. Here's just one more quote from Dorothy Patterson. And you have to hear this because it's so powerful. Listen to this. Keeping the home is God's assignment to the wife, even down to changing the sheets, doing the laundry, and scrubbing the floors. Few women realize what great service they are doing for humankind and for the kingdom of Christ when they provide a shelter for the family and good mothering, the foundation on which all else is built. A mother builds something far more magnificent than any cathedral, the dwelling place for an immortal soul. No professional pursuit so uniquely combines the most menial tasks with the most meaningful opportunities. That's a powerful testimony. A powerful testimony. Of course, there are many different scenarios that are related to the reasons why a wife and mother might need to consider working outside of the home. But answering that question, what is the primary reason for working outside of the home, is a great starting point to determine if the motive is honoring to the Lord. A pastor at one of our previous churches shared uh, this testimony. He said that he used to think that um, the, the calling of being a pastor was, was the highest calling um, that a person could receive on the planet. And after he and his wife had children, he changed his position. He shared that the highest calling on the planet was for the wife as a stay-at-home mom because she's responsible for training up and nurturing the next generation. What a true and, and powerful insight that collectively, collectively, and, and, and women, you, you need to see this and know this, that according to God's plan, according to God's purpose, collectively, your nurturing and love and care through the home shapes the next generation. That's true. That is true, and it's powerful. And, and of course, that ha- can have negative effects as it relates to unbelieving homes. But especially for Christians, it's, it's a powerful testimony. And a wife and mother working outside the home is a wisdom issue. It's not a sin issue unless there are false motives. And again, this is why we're asking um, these questions. And again, it's so important to, to, to seek counsel. And I just want to share this on a personal note. 
I'm, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful to be at a church that not only provides me with a salary, but pays me well enough that this is a non-issue for, for Victoria and I. I, I want to thank you. I want to thank you from, from, from both of our hearts, Victoria and, and mine, that, that that's where we're at. And, and, and though we would do all that we, we can, we're, I, I want to make sure that you also don't sense that I'm, being, uh, that I'm uh, standing firm on a position here. I'm, I'm saying that we need to pursue a path of wisdom, that there are different scenarios and there's different factors and there's dif- different qu- questions that need to be asked that determine whether or not it would be a good idea for a wife to have a career outside of the home. And there are a host of other practical questions related to whether or not um, this should happen. And allow me to share a, a few how well is the woman handling her responsibilities as a wife and as a mother? It goes without saying that if a mom and a wife, if they're already struggling with the responsibilities of the home to throw something else into the mix would not be the path of wisdom. And all couples who are considering this as an option or who may consider it in the future need to do a heart check before the Lord to make sure that God's role for both her as a mother and a wife will not be hindered or compromised in any way. A woman should ask herself if she can keep home life and its responsibilities while working outside of the home. And you know, we tend to do this. We tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, don't we, when it comes to our own bandwidth? I've been humbled in in that regard myself. And so if for any reason working outside the home becomes detrimental to a woman's role within the home it's wise for couples to have an exit strategy in place before even taking on or trying a job out for a season another good and very practical question is this what season of life is my family in the daily life of a wife with toddlers differs greatly from a wife who has an empty nest a family with small children must consider what is best for the children's development and well-being. And this might mean sacrificial uh, finances or s- sacrifices uh, financially for a wife to be a stay-at-home mom in the early years. A woman with school-aged children might be able to work during school hours, and of course, an empty nester will have more time to use outside of the home and also for the church. And so, again, one of those th- things, not only... Um, uh, bandwidth, but just where you're at, where, where you're at in, in the season of life. And for those who are young marrieds and you, you don't have children yet, and um, you, it, it serves as an opportunity to um, save up for that down payment for that home that you want to buy, and, and both people are, are working, and, you know, that's a, financially that can, a dual-income family, that can allow you to, to get ahead a little bit. But certainly... If roles are being compromised, there's, it's, it's finding that balance. Just one final question um, before we conclude this point. Another vital and practical question to ask is whether or not working outside the home will create any unnecessary temptation or division in family relationships. Married couples must consider if working outside the home, whether or not this will create undue temptation. We live in a culture where 
adultery and promiscuity are just so prevalent even in the workplace. And it's pretty staggering as women started to join the uh, workforce, how much more prevalent and pandemic it became. And so married couples should be very sober in considering uh, work outside of the home in light of this. We also currently live in an area, an era where Christian marriages are suffering at the same rate as those who are unbelievers. And so this should cause couples to consider whether their choices will profit their family or harm it. Again, this is where having that off-ramp, just in case, you know, that's the path of wisdom. Uh, if the husband suffers, it's not worth it. If the children suffer, it's not worth it. If the husband or wife's conscience is torn about it, it's not worth it. It's not. Now, I realize I, I, I probably sound very pessimistic when it comes to wives and mothers working outside the home. But let's, let's just say it's just walking a path of wisdom. It's, it's being cautious. And let me end on a positive note. It must be considered that a family might profit from a wife's work outside the home. She may very well be able to help supplement the income. She also may be able to do work that she thoroughly enjoys and the family is going to be able to rally around her and celebrate that joy with her. Many couples have honored Christ as dual income families while remaining united and serving together as great testimonies. And so one thing that really encouraged my heart was the incredible unity that we have as an elder team when we discussed this matter recently. We, we realize that there are many different factors and variables involved when couples consider this as an option for their family. And we want you to know that we're committed. We're committed to praying for you. We're committed to seeking God's word and, 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 and providing the best possible counsel that we can. But can I just, can, can I just a- ask something of, of even the young singles that will be married eventually in time? And for those of you who are um, maybe without children, actually for, for everyone, would, 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 you, would you honor us? And, and one way that you can do that practically, would you, would you engage us, the, the, the elders, just to have conversations so that we could, as we pray for you about this as a family, would, 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 that, that this wouldn't be an independent decision, that we could wrap our arms around you and love and, and talk about some of the challenges you may have faced, it may, I mean, there might be financial pressures. We could even talk, there might even be a way for the church to be able to help if it involves a, a season of life or of challenge. We, we, we just really, really, really would love to have a conversation with you before any decisions are made. Well, we've covered five out of seven testimonies. Young, teachable women learn to love their husbands. They learn to love their children. They learn to be sensible. They learn to be pure. They learn to be workers at home. And our time's up, and I spent the bulk of our time talking about women potentially working outside of the home. And I didn't say one thing about ladies working inside of the home. And that's what it's talking about here, okay? But testimony number six is actually related to testimony number five, and I'll explain more about that, and we'll cover it next week. Well, I wanted to close with a quote from Elizabeth Elliot, who shares this. The world looks for happiness through self-assertion. 
the Christian knows that joy is found in self-abandonment. If a man will let himself be lost for my sake, Jesus said, he will find his true self. A Christian woman's true freedom lies on the other side of a very small gate. Humble obedience. But that gate leads out into a largeness of life undreamed of by the liberators of the world. To a place where the God-given differentiation between the sexes is not obscured but celebrated. Where our inequalities are seen as essential to the image of God. For it is in male and female. In male as male and female as female. Not as two identical and interchangeable halves that the image is manifested. To gloss over these profundities is to deprive women of the central answer to the cry of their hearts. Who am I? No one but the author of the story, God, can answer that cry. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads now just to thank you for the wisdom that continues to guide and shepherd our steps as we walk in this life. We do receive such great counsel, vital counsel really, as we look to you and look to your word for the direction as it relates to the paths that we should take in our lives. And I pray, Father, just even for all the couples that find themselves in this position right now or who could potentially find themselves in this position in the future where for some reason that it appears that you might be opening up the door or they see it as uh, an opportunity that you could be opening up the door to have mom or wife work outside of home. I just, I want to shoulder that burden, and we do as a church. We want to um, just lift them up to you right now and pray that you would give them um, guidance, that your Holy Spirit would allow them to strive in unity and to strive in love together as they seek counsel and seek your word to make an informed decision. And Lord, you do own the cattle on a thousand hills and you can provide in many different ways, shapes, and forms for the needs that we have as families. And I praise you for being a part of a church family that really has blessed Victoria and I so much. Our hearts are forever grateful to you for them and so as we consider who we are as we consider the reality of our testimony and our teachability would you allow us to magnify the gospel and to magnify your word and for us to be faithful testimonies to the world around us and an internal testimony to each other that it would be internal that it would be something that you would do within us to grow us and sanctify us. We again thank you for this time to pray, and we commit the remainder of our day to you, asking that you would bless it. In Jesus' name.
Amen.